I don't think there was a single one of us who was not affected by the power outages between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Between one of those, you either got hit both or you got hit once for multiple days. Some of multiple, multiple days. Yes, I heard Crestline got the worst of it. Yeah, so that was rough. Um, And as soon as, you know, the power goes out, it's like, okay, light, we can do without light. TV, we can do without TV. Like, it's when it begins to gradually drop the temperature in your house that you begin to care about heat. That's when you want the power back. And so I remember thinking, okay, this will be fun. And just watching it get gradually darker and gradually colder through the day. And like, maybe tomorrow we'll get it back. No, maybe tomorrow. Now, some people had their homes drop to the point where you could see your breath. That's awful. I'm so sorry. That's miserable. Uh, we have a wood, bur- wood, bur- wood burning stove in our house. And so it was just enough to keep it tolerable. You know, you got scarves on, wool socks, and your whole flannel outfit. But you weren't too cold, right? It was, I mean, we were able to make it. And that was great. So we, you know, like the fire and the wood-burning stove puts out a lot of heat. And, um, but what was interesting is that we noticed we didn't want to be anywhere else in the house. We wanted to be where the wood-burning stove was. So we moved our beds up on the sofas by the wood-burning stove. And so my three-year-old, my five-year-old, my wife and I, the, the kids are on the floor. She's on one couch. I'm on the other couch. And we are just warm enough to make it through, right? It was fantastic, at least to have that. And it was actually an interesting bonding, like just an interesting, something that we'll all remember that we did together. Um, I'm not romanticizing this. I don't hope it happens again. But, but see, when the power goes out and it gets colder and it gets darker, you need a stove, something that will help the room get lighter and warmer. And when there is the presence of light and warmth in a power outage, there are people drawn to that place. Zephaniah is a prophet to the southern kingdom of Israel during such power outage. Now, not their literal power, but in a spiritual sense, the southern kingdom of Israel had gotten to a place where it was getting colder and it was getting darker. And Zephaniah wants to stoke the furnace. He wants to spark a flame. So you may recall that after King Solomon inherited a great kingdom that his father David united, his death saw it separate. His son took two tribes to Jerusalem, and a rival, an ambitious politician, took ten of the tribes up north. And there were two kingdoms. 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire wipes out the northern kingdom, completely decimates them. So just Jerusalem's left at the time Zephaniah writes. Well, he lets them know, you won't be lasting much longer, because about 40 years from when I'm writing, the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to do some damage. Well, that gets everyone's attention. Oh no, you mean God isn't going to be indifferent to our situation? God's going to do something about this eventually? Zephaniah says, yes. So, Zephaniah is going to be that wood-burning stove in the midst of Israel, trying to bring warmth, trying to bring heat and light into an ever-darkening, ever-coldening 
spiritual situation. So, about 40 years before Babylon deals a blow to Jerusalem, Zephaniah writes, The word of Yahweh that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the good kings of Israel, of Jerusalem. He is in royal lineage. And he remembers, perhaps, from his grandfather's grandfather's tales about how good it was when there was a godly king on the throne. So Zephaniah draws from a family lineage and begins to preach. In the days, we're continuing in verse 1, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. We're coming to the end here. Josiah has a son. That son gets wiped out. And then two puppet kings are installed by foreign governments. And then Jerusalem's no more. I mean, we're 40 years from the end. Josiah was the last good king. You might remember, Josiah actually led a revival. Do you remember this? Josiah was having some renovations done to the temple. And in the process, they find... A scroll, mired in dust and uh, neglect, and they blow it off, and they cough, and they start to read it. And they think, the king needs to hear about this. These are the forgotten words of Moses. This is not working. These are the forgotten words of Moses and his law. It was the book of Deuteronomy. And when when Josiah hears the words from Deuteronomy, it says he tears his garments And the nation goes into repentance. Who's prophesying during Josiah's reign? Zephaniah is. It is widely believed, therefore, that Zephaniah preached first. Then Josiah renews an interest in the temple because of Zephaniah's preaching. (gasps) Tragedy's coming. And in the process, they find the neglected law of God, read it, and a revival happens. Isn't this cool? Zephaniah actually sees some results to his preaching. Throughout so far, we have seen these minor prophets preach to no avail. Ironically, the only people who respond to the prophets preaching are the Ninevites. When Jonah, who didn't even want to be a prophet, preaches to them, they respond, and nowhere do we see Israel responding. But, apparently, finally, just before they're about to be wiped out, Josiah's people sees one last flicker of hope because Zephaniah preached these words. So, what does Zephaniah preach? Doom. Doom, doom, and doom, followed by a high crescendo of hope. So, let's read it. So, in chapter 1, you're going to see, by the way, this whole book is about that day. We've been seeing the phrase that day, or it's also, that's a synonym for the day of the Lord, Okay? The day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, is this great and final climatic day when all of the world is changed because God comes to judge the world. We know in the New Testament that this will be Jesus judging the nations on behalf of the Father. This is the day of the Lord. So doom comes with it. Because some people, when dad gets home, they're in trouble. That's how it is. But other people find All the wrongs are righted when dad comes home. And so it's also a day of rejoicing. That's the day of the Lord. Zephaniah is going to be talking about the day of the Lord. For Israel, it's coming early. It's coming in 40 years when the Babylonians take out the city. 
but, na- for, but around the world is coming at yet a future date. So this book is still very much a call to all of us to be ready for that day. So you're going to see that phrase show up 14 times in chapter 1. 14 times you're going to see the re- a reference to the day of the Lord. Then in chapter 2, we're going to find out what the day brings. It burns everything. And in chapter 3, you're going to see, yet on the other hand, it burns everything to revive everything. So that's it. The day of the Lord is coming, chapter 1. It's going to burn everything, chapter 2. It's going to revive everything, chapter 3. All right. So 1 verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. Well, that'll get their attention. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble or the idols with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. How does Zephaniah start? The opposite way that the Bible starts. In the beginning, God put things in place. Zephaniah says, well, in the end, things are going to be taken out of place. Wake up, Israel. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, the southern kingdom, and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, their capital. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, an idol, and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heaven, those who bow down and swear to Yahweh, and yet swear by Milcom. Now, Milcom also was named Molech, and he was the god that they would offer children to on the brazen hot arms of the idol. So, and, uh, so I'm going to um, come, and those who bow down and swear to Yahweh, and yet swear to Milcom, those who have turned back from following Yahweh, who do not seek Yahweh or inquire of him. So take stock, everyone. If you're, if you're messing around, it's, it's, it's coming. Take stock where you're at with Yahweh. Now in verse... So notice, there's a global event. The day of the Lord is global. But then it also starts to center on Jerusalem. And then at the end of the chapter, is going to focus back on the global effect. I find this hitting home because, unfortunately, as Christians, we can sometimes ride the high horse and say, we're good with God. Judgment's for them. And here Zephaniah says, yep, it's for them. But then he brings it really close to home and then reminds us it's also for them. So there's this, this pattern where in the center of this day of the Lord we need to take stock too. This isn't just about, well, they better get their act together. It's coming. He's like, you know, make sure your heart is right too. So in 1 verse 7, he's now addressing Jerusalem specifically. Be silent before the Lord Yahweh. For the reference number one, day of Yahweh is near. Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on, number two, the day of Yahweh's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, three, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. So he's going to punish the rulers. 
Notice this weird one in verse 9. Everyone who leaps over the threshold. What's wrong with that? Does that mean if I'm like superstitious about stepping on a crack and falling and breaking my mom's back? Does that, is that like I'm in trouble? Actually, pagans had a superstition where demons lurked in thresholds. Gods would fill buildings, but the demons lurked in the thresholds to try to snatch whoever was coming in. And so there was a superstition that as you went in, you would carefully, don't touch the threshold of the door. And some super zealous pagans would, in order to ensure there would be no demons in their threshold, would actually build the threshold upon their firstborn child. That would ensure no demons. They would offer their firstborn child and bury him under the threshold. So this is why God's saying, look, you who threshold hop, believe ye in me, because that's not right. So in verse 10, our fourth mention of, on that day, declares Yahweh, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills, Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. So we're seeing the fish gate, um, the mortar, the traitors. Economy is going to tank. Verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Wake up, okay? If you're complacent, not good. Now, I think the New King James doesn't say complacent here. It's something much more confusing. Uh, the ESV just went ahead and said, look, it means complacent, but then in a footnote, it says that the Hebrew talks about a thickening of the dregs. Um, so, in other words, like, the way, if you let wine just sit, the dregs, like the little particles of the grape that didn't get filtered through, would just sink to the bottom. And part of their process was to keep the wine moving as it fermented. So, um, these are people who just let everything settle. They're settling. They're complacent. So that's what verse um, 12 is talking about. I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, Yahweh will not do good, nor will he do ill. He just doesn't care. It's like the God of the 1800s, the deist God, the God who wound up the universe like a clock and said, let them do what they want. I'll just come and bring vengeance later. But as you'll see later, God is very near and present. He does care. So we shouldn't be complacent. Verse 13. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. So the economy is going to tank. You're going to put money in the bank and it's going to evaporate. It's going to be real encouraging. You're going to work and your paycheck is going to say one cent. In verse 14, you know, we have this volley of references to the day. So far we've had it mentioned four times. You're going to see a bunch. I'm not even going to count now. It's just going to get too chaotic, okay? Get ready. Verse 14. The great day of Yahweh is near. That's number five. Near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of Yahweh is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. 
a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. All right, the rulers are being judged, the economy is going to tank, and your military defense? What good is it if it's a cyber attack, right? Let's <laughs> just put it in modern terms. God's saying your military is going to do nothing for you. There's no defense. You're going down. Verse 17. Now we're focusing back outward on the larger world. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. Because they have sinned against Yahweh, their blood shall be poured out like dust, like nothing. Their flesh, like dung. What do you do with dung? Sweep it up, throw it out. That's going to be their flesh. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of Yahweh. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Yep, it's getting darker and colder. Heat and light is coming. (laughs) In too much glory, if you know what I mean. So, he's calling to the people, come closer to Yahweh now, so that you don't need this blazing God of wrath to visit you. Now, so in verse 2, he makes this actual call. Be right before he starts to explain that this day is going to burn everything. He's making this call for you and I to repent. So chapter 2, verse 1. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect. So before everything in chapter 1 happens, gather. Before the day passes away like chaff. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of Yahweh. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of Yahweh. Seek Yahweh, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of Yahweh. What does that sound like? It's coming. But if you seek Yahweh, if you seek righteousness, if you seek humility, perhaps you'll be sheltered. You'll be hidden. You'll be removed from the wrath. Verse 4. We now go into the nations around Israel. So classic, you'll notice this by now perhaps, that the prophets are classic in Naming all of Israel's enemies, saying they're going down, they're going down, and just getting the Israelites going, yeah, we like your sermon. And then at the very end, he saves the Israelites for last, right? The little hook, like, yeah, now that you want everybody else judged, how do you like it receiving it? So he's going to do that. Four neighbors, he's going to go, the neighbors on the west, the neighbors on the east, the neighbors on the south, and the neighbors on the north, and then he's going to hit them right in the middle. Jerusalem. Okay. So in verse 4, we see the neighbors on the west. You see Gaza, you see Ashkelon, you see Ashdod, you see Ekron. They'll be uprooted. Um, Then in verse 8, I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites. So these are the neighbors on the east. How they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, 
Moab shall be like Sodom and the Amorites like Gomorrah. Ooh, that's pretty final. And then in verse 12, the neighbor on the south. You also, O Cushites, another name for the Egyptians, you also, O Egyptians, shall be slain by my sword. That's it. They get one verse. It's almost like Zephaniah's like, you all know the Egyptians. What more do I need to say? You're done too. And now in verse 13, the neighbor's on the north. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation. Now, Geo uh, took us through two weeks ago, Nahum. And Nahum was the, the longer prophecy against Nineveh. So you can, you can read more about that in Nahum. But he will destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Heads shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A vo- creation is going to take it back over. Because creation, they're not rebelling against God. Um, a voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be upon the threshold for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am. What does that sound like? God's personal name, Yahweh, I am that I am. Well, the Ninevites said, I am, and there is no one else. That is high arrogance. Now, you may remember we focused on this because Isaiah plays on this quite a bit toward the Babylonians. This was back in Isaiah chapter 47. The Babylonians are saying, I am, there is no other. And that Isaiah responded to by saying, "Um, no, God is the I am, and there's no other but him. And then the Babylonians say, no, that's us. And so you can read about that, Isaiah chapters 45, 46, and 47. A longer sermon on that whole line. So what a desolation Nineveh has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and snake and shakes his fist. So they're like, cool, north, south, east, and west, they're all going down. And then Zephaniah is like, and you in the center. Chapter 3, verse 1, finishes the whole burning. The day Lord's bringing a big destruction, a big burning. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the opposing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no corruption. She does not trust in Yahweh. She does not draw near to her God. Look out, Jerusalem. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. Yahweh within her is righteous. He does no injustice. In fact, every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. 
more prophets come, more sins are done. Your prophets come, our sin be done, O Lord. Now in verse 8, we have a pivot. We now shift to, yeah, that day is coming, that day is burning, but that day will also bring revival. So here's the pivot. Verse 8 brings us from burning to revival. Yahweh says, Therefore wait for me, declares Yahweh, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Remember that? He already said that. That was back in chapter 1. Verse 18, In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Here we see again, In the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Here's the funny thing about heat and light. It can warm you, it can give you what you need, it can cook your food, or it can kill you. It can burn you. You want fire where it belongs, you don't want it raging, right? You want it in the furnace. We'll get to that in a second. You want it, you, the furnace. You want it in your soul. You want the fire of God to burn and purify. You don't want it being imposed upon you. That reduces you. It consumes you. It judges you. So now the revival. Verse 9, 4. At that time. So the day of the Lord's also good. And that's what you're going to see here. At that time. What time? Remember, he just said in verse 8, he's gathering the nations. He's gathering the kingdoms. They're all going to be before him. We see this said in the New Testament. Jesus is going to judge all the nations. In Matthew 25, when he gathers the sheep and the goats before him, the nations will be gathered before him. At that time, when I gather the nations, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. All of them may call upon the name of Yahweh and serve him with one accord. Do you catch what is happening, the implication here? I'm going to gather them, I'm going to change their speech so that they're praising my name. Earlier in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 11, the nations gathered themselves and they built a tower and said, Let us make for ourselves a name. They were gathering to praise their own name, to build their own name. And God scattered them and confused their language. So multiple languages, multiple nations, multiple locations. But now all of this is being redone. They're coming together again. They're speaking one language again. But instead of centering a tower of their own arrogant glory in the midst, the Son of God will be in their midst in all of his glory. And they will be praising his name, not building a tower for their name. We also see um, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 
There, there are Jews from all around the world doing festival at the temple in Jerusalem. So you have Jewish representatives from all around the world, different nations coming in one place. And what does God do? He gives them all one language through the gift of tongues as the Holy Spirit descends upon them. And what do the tongues declare? The people from the nation say, wait, what is this? We hear them preaching or we hear them praising God in our own tongue. You see the fulfillments, the, the, the glimpse of this happening in the day of Pentecost. The church is the beginning vehicle. We are the starting point for the gathering of nations, the one pure tongue that will praise Yahweh. It's begun. The day of the Lord has begun. It is coming to its final conclusion when God returns and Jesus returns and brings all the nations together to either be burned or revived. Yeah? That's what's coming. Okay. So now in verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, remember that's Egypt, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offspring. On that day, you shall not be put to shame, because the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, oh, you shall not be, okay, I read that wrong. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then, on that day, I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, your Babylites. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. And how does that not evoke Jesus' first words in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. Who, who inherits the kingdom? The humble, the lowly, the poor in spirit. They shall seek refuge in the name of Yahweh. 13. Those who are left in Israel, and they shall do no justice and speak no lies nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Now in verse 14, a call to participate in this great future revival. When I'm using the word revival, by the way, think new heaven and new earth if that helps. This is foreseeing the return of Jesus and reviving everything. What Revelation calls the new heavens, the new earth. Second Peter chapter 3 talks about the, the day of the Lord coming and it will burn everything so that what will be left is a new heaven and a new earth. He uses the phrase too. And so that's what you're seeing. That's the New Testament terminology. Isaiah, actually, you might remember, he also used the phrase new heaven, new earth. And so that's what we're seeing. But now, so the invitation, what's it going to be like? Let's respond like this. Verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Yahweh has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Boy, one wonders if Zephaniah had any clue that the cross was coming and that Jesus takes all the shame, takes all the judgments away from them by putting them on himself. And clears, clears all of that record. See, friends, the day of the Lord is a day of rejoicing. And that's how we should see it, on the condition that we get there through Jesus. 
that is where he becomes our covering, our hiding place from the burning. And the burning becomes instead of purifying for us so that all of the impurities are drawn away and we become literally the sons and daughters of God seen in all of our glory. As First John says, look, if you're sons and daughters now, we don't know what you will be when he returns. Romans 8 says, all of creation is straining their necks, waiting for Christ to come because it's eager to see the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. That's coming for those in Jesus. Now in verse, uh, middle of 15, the king of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. He's in your midst. The king of Israel is in your midst. Now, you might remember back in chapter 1, verse 12, I will punish the men who are complacent or letting the dregs settle. What a drag. Hmm. Well, the right perspective is that the king of Israel is in your midst. You can't be complacent when the consuming fire is in your midst. Verse 16, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. If you've ever gotten the sense that God's annoyed with us sometimes, what? You again? I thought we put you in bed. He's not. He's exulting over us. He's rejoicing over us with singing. He takes delight in our need of him. That's what he wants. He wants our want for him. Nothing makes him look more glorious. Nothing fulfills his joy more than when we seek him and need him. You don't exhaust him. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Verse 18. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. So, from mourning to feasting. 19. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. But you know the person that you want to get even with, but are too Christian to actually do it? God's like, I'm going to do that for you. And I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says Yahweh. So Jerusalem, yep, the day of the Lord's coming for you really soon, 40 years from Zephaniah's preaching. And yep, the Babylonians wipe them out, they get burned up. But there's a day when God's going to revive them, he's going to resurrect them. And I think uh, the New Testament makes clear that we are the first fruits of that resurrection, of that revival, and the rest of Israel will join later. We're seeing it begin. The harvest has begun. The fruit is coming. Winter is giving away to spring, and summer is nigh. The day of the Lord is almost upon us. And it's a day of revival. Zephaniah that wants to make sure that you're going to be part of that revival and not part of the wrathful side. 
Zephaniah wants Israel to enter into a time of revival. He wants us to enter into a time of revival. So, let's look at the rules for revival. What does Zephaniah have to show us? What does he have to tell us about this? I, I, okay, here. You know, initially, when I was preparing all week, actually, I, um, I, I was really leaning towards doing a message on the judgment, the final judgment, like the day of the Lord's coming, and how's he going to separate who is what. And I, man, I had that already. And then this morning, God's like, yeah, do you, I mean, come on. Is that really, like, exciting you right now? I'm like, it's really not. It kind of feels like a chore, like I'm supposed to teach this. So he, he changed it, and so I kind of crammed this afternoon to get it together, and lo and behold, I'm glad I did. It was exciting. Um, so he, he put the revival in my heart. The first thing I thought when I read Zephaniah is, oh, Zephaniah is the prophet of revival because of what he does with Josiah. But I was like, yeah, but that's just too, see, I don't like the word revival. I don't, know if I, I don't know if you guys are with me on that. Um, I like the idea of revival, but the word itself has always made me cringe. And here's why. And it may, this might just be my experience with it. Whenever I hear the word revival, I see these really fanatical people trying to really work up emotion within the people of God and trying to make something look great. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't think that's what God wants, is a bunch of cheerleaders trying to put on a revival. So the word has always made me cringe. But then God made it very clear to me. He said, Brandon, if man could create revivals, then the other minor prophets would have seen them happening, and Zephaniah probably wouldn't have been necessary. We don't start revivals. Revivals aren't something we decide, oh, we need one, let's do one. Revivals aren't something we plan and program. In fact, if you, you could suggest... In fact, go if you want, because we're going to look there in just a second anyways. 2 Kings chapter 22 is where we see Josiah's revival. 2 Kings 22. And what you'll see is that Josiah was probably... So he probably hears Zephaniah's preaching and thinks, Oh, let's revamp the temple because we need people to get zealous for God again. But what he learns in the process is that the temple had nothing to do. Revamping the temple, expanding it, making it more beautiful, building it, whatever, that has nothing to do with revival. That's what he learns. So look, if, uh, if you can find Second Kings, it's after First Kings. Second <laughs> uh, Kings 22. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Childlike faith, you must say, huh? God uses the foolish, uses the humble, uses the surprising. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of those people. And he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh and walked in all the way of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or the left. Josiah was just like David, did the right thing, worshiped God, loved God. Now, in the 18th year of King Josiah... This is 622 B.C. This is 40 years before the Babylonians crushed Jerusalem. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, 
the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of Yahweh, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of Yahweh, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. He basically says, look, go up and give them the money and make sure the repairs on the house of God are going along smoothly. So, in verse 8, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, Hey, you won't be- I'm glad you came to investigate how the building is going on because you won't believe what we found. I have found the book of the law in the house of Yahweh. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, uh, <clears throat> interesting thing just developed. Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of Yahweh. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, And um, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And there launches the revival in Israel. They, for the first time in generations, in fact, since Joshua, really, they keep the Passover feast. All of these things that God asked them to do and they neglected are finally being done. But here's what I thought was interesting. We tend to think of a revival as, all right, go do a lot of work and make it happen. And that's what Josiah set out to do. Go fix a temple, make it beautiful. Maybe it'll draw all the people to Christ. Our terminology, right? Um, but in the process, they discover something better they discover the book of Deuteronomy. They discover scripture. They discover their roots, which they had been neglecting. Revivals come from God. Revivals are not us getting really excited and us working really hard and bringing lots of outsiders to church. That's not a revival. That might be a result of revival. They may come because when the world gets colder and darker, people are drawn to what is warm and bright. When the furnace gets going, you might see the unbeliever become a believer. But the attempt to do that is not a revival. A revival is when the people of God follow the three rules of revival. First, the people of God become biblical again. They become biblical. In other words, they return to their roots. That's what Josiah does. That's what launches this whole thing. Zephaniah has been preaching for who knows how long, who knows how many tomatoes have been thrown at his head. But finally, Josiah's like, well, we should consider this. They find scripture. And it's in the reading of scripture that he tears his clothes and that the nation begins to return to God. They returned to their roots, which they had utterly neglected. They had uprooted themselves. They didn't need what we want. And they were withering and wilting. But Zephaniah is preaching. Josiah's finding of scripture. That is what begins the revival. Sometimes churches try to get clever. We need to make our good news more appealing to those that don't know it. So we try to go for novel things. Um, Things that aren't bad. Um, They're just... They're more exciting than the Bible. In fact, look, my experience working with youth and even a lot of adults, not you guys, 
I mean, you're here on Super Bowl Sunday, so it's definitely not you. But there are a ton of Christians who are just flat out bored with the Bible. Here's how it can sometimes go. I'm with another pastor. People are like, oh, cool, what are you guys doing at your church? Like, well, we're doing this series on like, blah, 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 like, I don't know, how to have a dynamic marriage or something. A good thing, right? A good thing. Um, and that sounds really exciting. Like, wow, I want, I want to go to that. And then like, well, we're going through the minor prophets and a conversation. Literally, no one's like, oh, cool, the book of John, that's going to make me come to church. Like, honestly, often what you're teaching in scripture does not draw people they want something new, something novel. Even Christians are like, yeah, we know the Bible. It's kind of failed us, or people have misused it, or it's just not exciting. Like, we know it's got a lot of good things in here, but we want something that, like, just right now, just help me out. Give me Christian self-help. Look, it sounds, it's, but sometimes, and it's just the novelty of it. It's like, oh, something different. Okay, so look, I am not saying that this, the churches that do that are bad. That is far from my point. You can conclude that if you want. That's not my conclusion. My conclusion is, is that those are not things that produce revival. They may be useful in seasons, and we may need things like that at times. But revivals are rooted in Scripture. They take us back to our beginning. It takes us back to tradition. I was reading about the Great Awakening uh, this morning as I was, oh, I've got to turn the page here to revival. And I wanted to see like, what happened in the Great Awakening. So the first Great Awakening in the 1700s, you may know, began with Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a dry preacher. Fantastic intellect. His, reading, his writings are fantastic. I encourage everyone to read them. They're hard, <clears throat> it's hard to get into. You might take a page a day, but they're fantastic. But Jonathan Edwards was just this kind of, he just read, literally read what he wrote out. And God wants you to love him. Like, <laughs> imagine if I did that, it would be kind of interesting. Um, and he had a very small congregation and had mediocre results for several years. And then one day, as he's reading his manuscript, someone begins to cry. There's an emotional reaction. Like, what is it? What's going on in here? This hasn't happened in several years. Jonathan Edwards did not go to public speaking classes or how to be more charismatic or marketing techniques to get a revival into your church. He didn't say, you know what, we're going to shelve the Bible for a moment because we just need something exciting. We're going to do this. He didn't do any of that. He just kept going through Scripture, and one day God awakened the hearts of his hearers. And that's when the first Great Awakening began. found the roots of that very interesting. There was no technique, no trick God began to move in people's hearts as this pastor labored to bring them into deep theology and a closer understanding of Scripture and the heart of God. Um, so, they start, the first rule of revival is that it must be biblical. The second rule, I don't know what I'm doing, the second rule is that it must be hopeful. It must be hopeful. So, a revival is sparked with Scripture but it is consumed with the coming of that day. The day that Zephaniah has been talking about, the day that for 14 times in chapter 1 alone he was talking about, the day of Yahweh. Revivals are consumed with that day, which is to say that they're hopeful. They recognize that the world's getting colder and darker, but they say, wait, there's light and there's warmth in Christ. And they become consumed with that coming day. 
Not in the sense that, oh, we're going to check out of the world and just kind of wait for Jesus to come back. Not that kind of hopeful. Hopeful in the sense that if he's coming back, let's begin to embody and practice the revival that he's bringing right now in our midst. Let's begin to love and rule with justice and righteousness and, and show peace and joy in the meantime. Because we are looking forward and hopeful for that day. Which also means that people need to understand sin's a real thing. And we need to turn from sin because that day is coming. And then we can look forward to it. We can be hopeful for it. That day. Not, well, the world has many that days. I realize this week is loaded with that day. If you considered what this week holds, number one, it's Groundhog Day. Wow. Okay, that's like the least exciting thing of this week. <laughs> it's ground. I don't know if it's winter or spring still. Did anybody find out? Okay. Yay, spring. Okay. So, um, today's Groundhog Day. Today is also the Super Bowl. That day. For many people, this is that day. Tomorrow is the Iowa caucus. I know a lot of us don't care, but I kind of want to see who who's coming up in the fold. Like, it's a big day for, most of Amer- for a lot of Americans. The Iowa caucus is tomorrow. Tuesday, President Trump is giving his um, State of the Union address. And on Wednesday, we're going to find out if he's acquitted or not, which is presumably he will be. Like, this is, so like, day after day, there's a lot of that days going on this week, but none of these are what revivals are based on. Not a single one of them. I yearn to see the Angels win the World Series again. That day. That's the way we must look, though, at this day that Zephaniah is talking about, the day of the Lord. And that's partly where revivals are rooted. So they're biblical, they're hopeful. Um, That day also, the reason also how this helps us today is that, you notice that in verse um, 6, Verse 15, Yahweh has taken away the judgments against you and has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. The king of Israel. In the midst of all this that he's been saying, a lot of Israel's problems is that they are following their human kings. And this king's like, well, the high places are now, we're going to put Baal there and the Asherah there and Moloch down here. And everyone kind of pick your God. And all the people are like, yay, the king said it's okay, so it's okay. But... Here's Zephaniah's like, no, remember who your king is. It's Yahweh. He's your king. And on that day, it will be made abundantly clear that he's the king because he's going to be the one making the decisions of what's right and wrong. That's what judgment is. He's going to bring all the things that are wrong to rights. That is what we're looking forward to, our king. And so for us right now as Americans, especially in our context, revivals don't come out of being uh, political extremists. Far right and far left are bad options compared to Jesus Christ. We have a king. And the church should be the place where people gather in one tongue, not divide themselves over what color of the political spectrum they hold to. If we put Jesus as the king, if we are looking forward to that day, then we'll put him as the king and we will recognize that the kingdom of God isn't red or blue. Now, we all have one that we prefer over the other. That's all right. But please, please do not elevate it as if it is God's party. Because here's the thing. 
One party needs more morality. And the other party needs more loving of their neighbor. It's just the bottom line. One is better at the other, the other is better at the other. Jesus is best at all of that. So why wouldn't Christians want to be both? Loving their neighbor and upholding morals and values. The church is the way. And this, if the church decided to put Jesus on the throne again, we may see, we may hope for, unity and revival in our nation. We must be biblical. We must be hopeful, finally. We must be experiential. In other words, we cannot just leave God upstairs in our heads. He must be part of our experience. The second thing about the Great Awakening I learned was that Jonathan Edwards was huge on... In fact, he wrote a book called Religious Affection. He was not all about knowing God with the head. He said, if you do not know or have any... If you only know God and have no feelings for God, your religion is dead. There must be a combination. Think of it like this. Truth is like light and your affection is like heat. If the world's getting colder and darker, we can't just turn the light on. We must bring heat too. And so when light enters your soul, when the truth comes in, it should also generate the heat of affection, the desire to be with God, a love for God, the willingness to say, I will what you will. I want that. See, our ideas aren't going to bring revival. No one was stirred up. No great awakening was based upon, you convinced me rationally. That was part of it. I'm not throwing that out the window. That is definitely part of it. But revivals are when we feel affection for God. Religious affection, Edwards defines as affection for God that comes from God. That's so important. Because the minute you start to talk about religious affection, you can start thinking about people that swing on chandeliers, bark and roll around in the aisles, and like, we feel it, man! And they're like trying to do what other denominations don't do in their little high piety, like we're super serious and quiet and don't, oh, the bench creaks. Um, we, we think that, oh yeah, we just got to work it up. No, no, no. Don't work it up. Revivals are not based and coming from us. It's when we receive the affections of God for God. Or look at how Zephaniah puts it in chapter 3. He says in verse 17, Yahweh is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Now watch who's doing this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. And he will exult over you with loud singing. Please note, it doesn't say, you need to rejoice with more gladness. You need to be silenced in your love for him. You need to exult with loud singing. Come on, choir, louder! God can't move until you start getting excited. Like That's not what Zephaniah did. He said, hey, just wake up one second to realize God is doing all of that. And the one who receives what he's doing over us will receive his affection for us so that we can then have affection for him. It comes from him. It should be the last thing. Not the thing we aim for. It's the thing that results 
from being scripturally based and hopeful about the coming day. So personal experience is what Edwards emphasized. And the Great Awakening happened when the individual people stopped saying, well, I just belong to this church, and started actually experiencing personal salvation in each of their hearts. Okay, so I just want to leave you guys with this image, putting all that together. The world's getting colder and darker. We need heat and light. The power is out. We need a wood-burning stove. We need a furnace. So, you and I, our soul is the furnace. This, me, the vessel, you, we are that wood-burning stove. Okay, we're the container. God's truth Doctrine, scripture, who he is, these things we hold to. His truth is the wood put in the stove. But that's not enough alone, is it? You need fire. You need a spark. The Holy Spirit enters into your vessel. And he ignites the truth. He ignites the wood. And now you have fire. You let that keep going. What will radiate from the stove? heat, warmth, light. Those, that thing that's felt, those are our affections. We put God's truth in us. We let his spirit ignite the flame and you will see your rejoicing. You will see your love. You will see your exultation and your loud singing coming out because you can't keep that light and heat contained. Zephaniah wants you and I to let the furnace blaze. So let's be biblical, let's be hopeful, let's be experiential. You don't, you don't manufacture the experience. The experience is a byproduct. Revivals are what God does, and we say yes. Let's say yes. Let's not stand in his way with all of our sinful ways. And he'll do it when he sees fit. But it's up to us to follow the rules of revival. And he will do it in his time. Lord, we look forward to when you drop the match.